Good morning, loved ones. I'm so happy that we have this time to just study God's word together. And I pray that this will be just a moving time for you and that God will speak mightily to you. We have a powerful text today. So let us open in a word of prayer and then we'll jump right back into Matthew chapter 7. Father God, Lord, we do thank you so much for your precious word. And Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your son, Jesus, and the salvation that we have in him. Father, I pray that you will just speak to us now, that you will give us ears that are ready to hear, that you will give us hearts that are ready to hide your word within them. And Father, I pray that you will increase our understanding and our belief so that we might follow you more faithfully and more obediently. Lord, we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. And so, loved ones, I want to start off today by telling you a story. There was a song that was released in January of 1953, and it would go on to be one of the most iconic country music songs of all time. It would go on to be this particular artist, probably his greatest hit, and this song would be covered again and again, which just further reinforced the fact that this was a country country music standard. And one of the great ironies of this particular song was that it was released about a month after the artist died. And this song that I'm talking about is, of course, Your Cheatin' Heart by Hank Williams Sr. And what makes this song so powerful, as so many of other Hank Williams Sr. songs, what makes them so powerful is its simplicity. In this song, we hear a spurned lover as he is singing to the one who betrayed him. And the spurned lover is saying to the betrayer that no matter how hard they try to go about life as normal, that at some point, their cheating heart will tell on them. Their heart will not allow them to go on and ignore the pain and the suffering that they caused to someone else. And that at some point, their heart will cause them the same pain and anguish as the person they spurned. And to me, the most powerful line in the song goes this way. It says this, when tears come down like fallen rain, you'll toss around and call my name. You'll walk the floor the way I do. Your cheating heart will tell on you. And as unlikely and as ironic as it may seem, here in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, we see where Jesus says something to us that is very similar. We find yet another illustration that Jesus gives to us to highlight the difference between the true disciple and the pretender. And that crucial difference between the two is that the true disciple hears and obeys what Jesus says. They listen and they do what Jesus commands. The true disciple backs up all of their profession of commitment to him with a life of obedience. All the while, the pretender just talks a good talk or they put on a good show without displaying any commitment or obedience to Christ. And in essence, these pretender disciples that we're going to read about, they are nothing more than fair-weather lovers who only think of Jesus when it benefits them. 
And so today, as we study Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23, we're going to focus in on three very important things. Number one, we're going to look and see what Jesus reveals to us about his identity in this passage. Secondly, we're going to discuss the incompleteness of professing Christ or doing works in Christ's name without obeying him. And lastly, we're going to see that a relationship with Christ requires obedience. And so let's jump right into this text and let's see what Jesus has to say. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 21. It says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? And didn't we cast out demons in your name? And didn't we do many other powerful deeds in your name? But I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you lawbreakers. And how heavy, my goodness, how heavy this text is. But the first thing that we have to do as we unpack this passage is to look and see what Jesus reveals to us about himself in these verses. We have to look at his words and we have to see what he tells us about his identity. And in this passage, we see three things about Jesus's identity. We see that he reveals himself to be God. We see that Jesus reveals himself to be the gatekeeper, and we see that Jesus reveals himself to be the good judge. And so let's just take a moment to talk through each of these aspects of Jesus's identity. Let's start with the most important one, with Jesus as God. And twice in these verses, we see where Jesus refers to himself through the uh, use of the phrase, Lord, Lord. And this phrase, Lord, Lord, definitely would have caught the ear of all of Jesus's Hebrew listeners. Now, we have to remember that the Greek word for Lord, the Greek word kurios, is the equivalent of the Hebrew word Adonai which is one of the ways that God was referred to in the Old Testament. And so already there is something very special about Jesus referring to himself in this way. But Jesus doesn't simply refer to himself as Lord. He doubles it. He refers to himself as Lord, Lord. We see this in two verses. Verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. And in verse 22, he says, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Now, this doubling isn't just for emphasis. This is actually one of the most sacred names, one of the most sacred titles given to God. In Hebrew, Lord, Lord is Yahweh Adonai. And in our English translations, we see this uh, usually translated as something along the lines of Lord Almighty or Sovereign God. And this was a title that was used by people who were on the brink of disaster. This is a plea for God and his help and for his strength. And we see this phrase used time and time again in the Old Testament. I'm just going to give you just a couple, a handful of examples in which we see this phrase, Lord, Lord, or Lord Almighty used in the Old Testament. 
Deuteronomy 9.26, Moses says, I prayed to the Lord and said, Sovereign Lord, Yahweh Adonai, Lord, Lord, do not destroy your people. Judges 6.22, when Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, Sovereign Lord, again, Yahweh Adonai, Lord, Lord. Judges 16.28, Samson cried out to the Lord, O Sovereign Lord, Yahweh Adonai, Lord, Lord, remember me. And lastly, Amos 7.2, Sovereign Lord, Yahweh Adonai. Lord, Lord, forgive Israel. So this idea of Lord, Lord, meaning God, was already deeply ingrained in the minds of the Hebrew people. And for Jesus to use this title as a reference to himself, this was a revelation and an assertion of Jesus's deity, of him being God. And we must remember that. We must remember that Jesus is not merely divine. To be divine means that you simply possess God-like qualities. But Jesus is more than that. He doesn't simply possess God-like qualities. Jesus is God. He is deity in the flesh. And to further drive this point home for us, what does Jesus do? He reminds us of who his dad is. He reminds us that his father is God. And so if anyone tries to tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God, you can very politely point them to this passage here and show them where he does just that. But we also see in this passage that Jesus is not only God, but he is also the gatekeeper to the kingdom. He reveals to us that he is the one who keeps the gate, who guards that narrow gate that leads into the kingdom. And we've spoken now for a few weeks about that narrow path that leads to the narrow gate and how this is the entry point through which the true disciple enters the kingdom. And here, Jesus tells us that he decides who is able to pass through that gate. And we're going to talk more about this in just a moment. But we already see that everyone who cries out to Jesus is not going to get in. Instead, Jesus tells us that only those who do, excuse me, only those who do the will of his Father in heaven, only they will be able to enter the kingdom. And Jesus is the one who is going to let him in. And since Jesus is the one who sets the standard for what it means to do the will of the Father, and since he himself is the standard by which everyone else is going to be measured, then it's only fitting that Jesus is the one who opens the gate to let the true believer and the true disciples in. Lastly, we see in this passage, that Jesus is the good judge. And this illustration that Jesus is giving to us, this is taking place sometime in the future. This is happening in the eschaton, in the last days. And the clue that lets us know this is found in verse 22. It's found there where Jesus says, on that day. Here, Jesus is speaking of the judgment day, of the day of the Lord, the day on which the 
good will be sorted out from the bad. The day in which the true disciples will go into the kingdom and then when the pretend imposter disciples will go into destruction. And we see here in these verses that Jesus is the one who is acting as the judge. He is the one before whom everyone is pleading their case. He is the one whose power and authority people are appealing to. And he is the one who gives the judgment decree of banishment to the wicked. And all of this, all three of these revelations paint a very complete picture of Jesus' total and unrivaled authority over absolutely everything in this world and in this universe. Jesus could not have made it any more clear to us who he is. He is here boldly asserting that he is God. He is not like God. He is not somewhat God. He is not just a little bit less than God. Jesus is God, period. End of discussion. But the question is, do we accept this and do we live like this is true? Do we live like Jesus is God and do we devote a lifetime of worship and obedience to him? Or is Jesus just another good luck charm that we turn to when we need something from him? And remember, you can answer this for me however you want to. You can tell me whatever you want me to hear. But when it comes down to it, your fruit and your heart are going to tell on you. And if we move on to verses 21 and 22, we see here where Jesus highlights two very important facts to us. He tells us, first of all, that not everyone who cries out to him, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, nor will everyone who does works, even works in his name, they will not also all go into the kingdom either. And though this doesn't really sound right to us, Jesus is making a very important point clear to us. And this point is this. It is not enough to simply profess that Jesus is God, nor is it enough to do works in his name. These things mean absolutely nothing if a person is not also backing up this profession and their works with a life of obedience. And let me give you an illustration that I hope will make this point make a little more sense to you. I can say, I can profess as much as I want to that I love my wife. But if I don't back up that profession with a commitment of devotion and a commitment to my wife, then what good is my profession? What good are my words of love? And likewise, I can go and I can do a lot of grand gestures. I can buy my wife nice things. I can do a lot of very showy things. But if I don't back those gestures up with commitment to her and a commitment to our vows, then what good are those gestures? There's a lot of talk of love and a lot of gifts given in the name of love in relationships where there's not even the faintest whiff 
of love. And the reason is because there's nothing strong that's binding that love together. There's nothing there to support those words or those displays. There's no commitment. Even a deadbeat knows how to say the right thing or to put on a good show from time to time. And that is precisely what Jesus is telling us here. If you think that simply saying, yeah, I believe Jesus is God, if you think that alone will get you into heaven, all the while you are continuing to live a life of rebellion and disobedience, then you have another thing coming to you, friend. Remember what James tells us in James chapter 2, verse 19. He says this, you believe that there is one God? Great. Even the demons believe that and they tremble with fear. And if you're putting your hope and your faith in the fact that maybe you've done a lot of great works, even really important things like prophesying or casting out demons, if you're doing all of that and thinking that's good enough, then loved ones, you've got a rude awakening coming to you. You have to remember that even broken clocks are right twice a day. And the Bible is filled with stories in which God takes the talent and the work of even the most wicked, sinful people, and he uses it for his glory. One of my favorite examples of this is found in Acts chapter 19. And there Luke records this story. He says this, some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And on one day, the evil spirit answered them and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? And then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. And he gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Loved ones, what I want you to hear is this. The words of our mouths and the works of our hands are meaningless if we do not back them up with obedience to God. We can memorize all the scripture we want. We can sing all the hymns we want. We can show up for all the worship services we want. We can put all the money in the plate that we want. We can do all the right churchy things at the right churchy times. But if we are not backing those things up with a commitment to obedience and a commitment to honoring God in everything that we do, then on the judgment day, we will be met by a closed gate. And Jesus will say to us, sure, you said some good things. Sure, you did some good things. But your heart was never faithful to me. You never obeyed me. So get away from me, you worker of evil and iniquity. And so loved ones, we have to ask ourselves, are we just professing with our mouths? Are we just going through the motions and doing things that look God or that look good, excuse me? Or are we backing these things up with a commitment to obedience? And by now, we should be coming to the understanding 
that being a true disciple requires obedience above everything else. Yes, we must profess and confess that Jesus is Lord. Yes, we must go and be about the work that he has left for us. But above all, we must obey him. And we see in verse 23 of this passage, one final critical component of true discipleship. There in verse 23, Jesus says to the pretend disciples, I never knew you. And how terrifying these words must be to hear. But they reveal something crucially important that we need to know. There, the word for know in Greek is gnosko, gnosko, and it refers to or it means to have a relationship with. It doesn't mean know in the sense of knowledge, like I know about something. Because let's remember, Jesus is God. He knows us. He has more knowledge of us than we even have about ourselves. But here Jesus is saying to these pretend disciples, I never had a relationship with you. And so, loved ones, we see that salvation is relational. Having a relationship with Jesus is what saves us. And that's what makes a true disciple a true disciple. It's that relationship with Christ. And the way we display this relationship is by professing that Jesus is Lord. It's by doing the things that Jesus has commanded us to do. But most importantly, it is through obedience. If we want to have a relationship with Christ, if we love Christ, then everything about us is going to want to obey him. And if we want to obey Christ, then we are going to be doing what he tells us to do in verse 21. We're going to be doing the will of my Father in heaven. The one who loves Christ, the one who obeys Christ, will be doing the will of his Father. And so let me ask you all a question. What is God's will? What is God's will that we must be about doing so that we can enter into the kingdom of heaven? And I know that when we speak of God's will, we often talk about it as some sort of mystery that we have to decipher and discern for ourselves. It's something that we have to uncover. But loved ones, the answer has been right in front of us for as long as anybody can remember. But it's been in a place that maybe we've never thought about looking to find out. Way back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, it says this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And I know already you're probably thinking, what in the world does this have to do with anything? Bear with me. There in this verse, we are introduced to two very important words. The Hebrew words avad and shamar. Avad and shamar. Now, in our English translations in this verse, we often see it translated as something like cultivate or to maintain or to keep the garden. And the idea is that uh, Adam was placed in the garden to take care of it. But guess what? 
nearly everywhere else in the Old Testament where these two words, avad and shamar, where they show up, guess what they mean? They mean worship and obey. Worship and obey. And just think about that. Just think about how that fundamentally changes what we think about what it means to be human, about what our role is. Yes, Adam was placed in the garden to take care of it, but God also put Adam in the garden so that he could worship and obey. Loved ones, that is God's will for us. That is God's will for humanity. That is God's will for all of creation. He made us to worship him and to obey him. And the entire story of the Bible is about how God cleans up the mess that we made when we disobeyed him and how he is going to make us able to do once more what he created us to do. And God is going to do this by sending Jesus to us to make us able, to make us capable of worshiping and obeying him once more. That is God's will, loved ones, that we worship him and we obey him. But we can only do this if we have a relationship with Christ. That is the only way through the narrow gate into the kingdom. We can say whatever we want. We can do all the works we want. But if we don't have a relationship with Christ, and if we are not worshiping and obeying him, then it doesn't matter how good we think we are. We're going to end up facing the same sentence as even the most wicked, evil, vile, evil sinners. And so, loved ones, what does your relationship with Christ look like? Do you have a relationship with Christ? Does he know you? Are you worshiping and obeying him? Or are you worshiping and obeying yourself? When tears come down like fallen rain, you'll toss around and call my name. You'll walk the floor the way I do, but your cheating heart will tell on you. When you stand before Christ, loved ones, what will your heart reveal about you? And what will Christ say to you? Well done, my good and faithful servant, or be gone, you worker of evil. I never knew you. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for making it so clear to us what we must do in order to have a relationship with you. We must be called by you into salvation, into a relationship with Christ. And once we have that relationship with him, Lord, we must commit ourselves to worshiping and obeying you. Father, I pray that you forgive us for the times in which we fail to do that. And Father, I pray you forgive us for the times in which we try to do other things that we think are good enough and which we and that lead us to not worshiping and obeying you. Father, forgive us, cover us with your mercy and your grace, and help us to commit our lives to being obedient, humble, faithful worshipers. Thank you so much for Christ, Lord.
It's in his name that we pray. Amen.